The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As Dr. Rogers mentioned this morning, it was, uh, we did not pick this text in response to the events of this past week. It was selected months ago as we planned out our series in 1 Corinthians, but it is timely in light of things happening in our culture. I would just add that uh, the decision of the Supreme Court this week has denied the states and the will of the people from defining and restricting marriage according to God's design as he intended it. And in many ways, our highest court expresses rebellion against his creator and fails to remain subject to the authority of the true supreme judge who will pass his final verdict on the last day. Paul offers a message to believers confused about many things 2,000 years ago, living in a licentious culture, not unlike our own. And so it's in response to these things that we consider this text, which offers us a biblical theology of the body and how we might glorify God with it. I read 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, that the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but... The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do live in trying times with challenges from legal sources and cultural sources, and believers find themselves pressed in, and yet your word is not bound and your word is powerful. And we pray, O oh Lord, that it would transform us and that you might use us to, bring, to be salt and light in a culture in desperate need of the word of truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
In his recent online blog, PCA pastor and men's ministry leader Gary Yagel wrote about the recent phenomena of former Olympic decathlete Bruce Jenner transforming into a woman named Caitlin, and spoke about how this adds further confusion, gender confusion, to our sons and daughters. Pastor Yagel went on to reveal the expressed agenda of the LGBT community, which aims to tear down distinctions between masculinity and femininity, as well as assault on the traditional nuclear family. School officials and counselors are being encouraged to help little boys who have a tendency to cry more, who express greater interest in musical and artistic matters and less interest in athletics, who are highly intelligent, who make friends easier with girls, to question their gender identity. It's a growing message on our college campuses, a place of much experimentation. You don't know what your orientation is until you try it. Well, Bruce Jenner may be the most recent poster child of our culture's warped obsession with the body and the glory of self. In a world that is increasingly pursuing bizarre distortions of what God intended for the body, we come to God's word to find instruction to pursue holiness. And the likeness of him who first pursued us and took up a human body to be beaten and to be crucified for our salvation. Paul offers three arguments for us to turn away from the glory of self to learn how to glorify God with our bodies, namely, in a triune fashion, that our body is first meant for the Lord, that our bodies are united to Christ, and that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul opens by quoting a slogan apparently used by the Corinthian believers to rationalize their licentious ways. This phrase, all things are lawful for me, perhaps came from other teachers who were competing with Paul's message. They might have come from Paul himself or even from the teachings of Jesus. But these believers are twisting this newfound freedom from the law to defend a kind of abuse of freedom. And we know that Paul elsewhere affirms freedom from the codes of the Mosaic law. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul there is rebuking legalistic teachers who were pressing in upon Gentile believers to conform to the Mosaic law, the purity laws, in order to gain any assurance of their salvation. But here in Corinth, the pendulum seems to swing from one extreme to the other, away from legalism and towards licentiousness in their efforts to preserve a kind of unbridled freedom, even to the extent of justifying consorting with prostitutes. Author Jerry Bridges offers the helpful analogy that preserving the gospel is like driving a car down a slick road with a ditch called 
legalism on the right and a ditch called license on the left. And to, in the efforts to avoid one ditch, sometimes we overcompensate and find ourselves landed into the other ditch. Staying balanced in the middle is not easy, especially when life and temptation are raining down on top of us. Well, the Corinthians apparently crashed and burned in the ditch called license. Paul responds to this slogan of theirs with wise counsel, indicating that not all things are helpful, and even if something is permissible, exhorting them to not allow anything to master them other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Desires are deceitful. And becoming a Christian does not give you an escape from sin's influence. Paul goes on to quote another of one of their justifications of their immoral behavior, and in the process exposes their flawed reasoning. That just because Christ has set them free from the ritualistic laws of the Mosaic Code, restrictions on food and circumcision and so forth, they are not free to scorn the holy requirements of God that are universal, that apply especially to intimate relations of the body. It seems that these believers in Corinth had erred with the Greek idea that if salvation means the escape of the soul from the prison of the body, then what you do with your body doesn't matter. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, God will destroy them both. But Paul responds to this error that dates back to at least Plato and responds with the truth of Scripture, rooted in creation, the incarnation, and the resurrection. He says that the body is not meant for porneia, which refers to any type of sexual relations outside of covenant, committed marriage. The body is meant for the Lord. The body is made, we are made in God's image. We are designed for a purpose, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. And I believe that in verse 13, the reference to, and the Lord for the body, is in reference to, is appealing to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only ancient and worldwide faith that affirms that God sent his eternal son into the world to take up human flesh, to truly take on human nature in its original created sinless form. Jesus on the earth taught us the kingdom of God, modeled for us true godliness, who fulfilled the law on our behalf, died a sacrificial death for our sins, and yet it's in his very embodiment that Christ affirms the inherent goodness of the body. And the body is not to be done away with, the body is not to be thrown out, and that Christ's appearance on earth reminds us that you and I are not slaves to sinful desires. We are not mere hopeless beasts as many in our culture might contend. We are not left 
to merely indulge our desires in despair, nor are we left to merely fight our desires with legalistic restrictions and rules. Christ rose from the dead, in verse 14, to point to the fact that you and I will raise with him. Our body is not to simply be used and thrown out. It is not simply disposable in a very disposable culture. What we do in the body matters. And we will be raised in Christ. We're meant for the Lord. To glorify him with obedient trust and joyful submission to his will. Well, like these believers in Corinth so long ago, we too find ourselves in a culture that does everything possible to encourage the indulgence of personal freedom, to deny any moral standards, to assert a principle of that whatever you do with your body is your own business and nobody else's. Young people rationalize cohabitation under the pretense that they will get married eventually. Married people rationalize divorce under the pretense of the right to be happy. It seems that most people today are rationalizing same-sex behavior in the name of freedom and same-sex marriage in the name of civil rights. I believe this text also appeals to other abuses of the body, our culture's problem with rampant substance Abuse. Countless numbers of people console their sense of meaninglessness, self medicate the pain of broken relationships through addictive behaviors. We have an epidemic of obesity on the one hand, and yet an obsession with physical appearance and fitness on the other hand. Some people eat to live, and some people live to eat. Believer, if anything other than Christ is your life, then rather than you consume it, it will consume you. I believe Paul spoke to the Corinthians then and to us today to help restore our sanity with this bedrock truth of creation, the incarnation of Christ and the ultimate hope of resurrection to show us that our bodies do not belong to us, they belong to the Lord. You will have a body forever. Your soul will not be floating out in heavenly clouds for all eternity. You will stand in a body on firm ground in the new heavens and in the new earth with a a body and soul that is united to Christ. Well, union with Christ is not just referring to the non-material soul of our existence. It refers to the whole self, including the body. Paul begins to rattle off various rhetorical questions in verses 15 to 17 that require biblical answers. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Yes. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them or make them members of a prostitute? To which Paul responds with an emphatic, never. Paul appeals to an argument from creation. 
going back to Genesis 2 to make the point that two persons, man and woman, form a one-flesh union in the act of intercourse. God chose to bless husbands and wives with a deep oneness through a physical bond to help preserve their union through life's various challenges. About seven years ago, a team of Christian OBGYN doctors published a book in which they revealed various uh, research um, various research results from the, the effect, studies on the effects of premarital, premarital, premarital sexual activity. The book was entitled Hooked, The New Science on How Casual Sex is Affecting Our Children. Now, most of us are familiar with the traditional arguments of warning against such activity because of the unintended and undesirable outcomes of unplanned pregnancies and STDs. But these researchers reveal other problems. The researchers confirm that the sex act releases chemicals in the brain that form an emotional bond. And that breaking those bonds are a cause of depression and make it harder for a person to make bonds with someone else in the future. These chemicals released in the brain are also addictive making it difficult and sometimes almost impossible for certain people to form those emotional bonds with a spouse. Premarital intercourse circumvents the necessary skills that come with learning how to communicate and solve problems together to endure the challenges of a marriage. And so, Consequently, couples who engage in premarital intercourse have much higher rates of divorce and depression. And not surprisingly, married couples express a much higher rate of satisfaction than those individuals who have multiple partners. So it turns out that the Bible actually does know what it's talking about. When it speaks of a man becoming one in body with a prostitute— And Paul offers something better. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, which by faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we become one in spirit with the Lord. We enjoy a oneness with God, an intimacy that we were designed for, that we were made for, that God intended from creation past. And all of the longing that people have, seeking it in premarital activity, extramarital activity, or same-sex activity, will never fulfill. Even the best of marriages only approximate the full satisfaction that comes from being united with Christ in this life and the eternal life to come. Recently, a prominent pastor of our denomination resigned, acknowledging what had been feared by many, that he and his wife had both engaged in extramarital affairs. And in this sad event, this couple had violated their vows to God, to each other, and the trust of their large congregation. Sadly, here is another man no longer qualified to do pulpit ministry despite his 
very strong gifts. The selfishness, the weakness of this couple, of their actions, apparently added mess to an already troubled marriage and has now devastated their children and left a congregation reeling in frustration. I'm sure that the consequences will have long and lasting effects, something that only God can bring good out of such a situation. And while I might speculate a bit, not knowing up close the situation at hand, in my observation of these type of broken marital situations, it is highly likely that this pastor neglected his wife, that in the pursuit of good ministry goals, allowed a marriage to crumble and quake and drift away. And in the mess, each of them made themselves vulnerable to temptation in the work of the evil one. Of course, each member of the marriage is responsible for his or her own actions. But we do contribute to the vulnerability and the weakness of our spouse. We'll explore these themes more next time in weeks to come in chapter 7, but I bring it up now just for us to begin thinking about the importance of conviction, the importance of commitment, the importance of seeking the Bible's instruction. The Bible gives two options with regard to our sexuality, chastity outside of marriage and faithfulness within marriage. It is necessary that we as Christian believers have very firm and clear convictions about what we believe, that we establish strong boundaries for our most precious relationships, and that we also need a humble awareness about our own weakness and vulnerability, clearly understanding the devastating consequences of sexual sin. I'll offer a few things to the members here tonight. I challenge men to develop a holy and holy hatred of that which blasts itself on the internet, to tempt and to lure and to understand that this is an industry that's exploiting girls and young women. That God's people, that men of conviction, are those who develop a holy desire to please God in your actions, in your thoughts, and in your attitudes towards women. To regularly rebuke your own tendency to fantasize in ways that are not pleasing to God. To avoid and reject all emotional attachments that get in the way of your intimacy with your own spouse. For men of conviction to seek the beauty and the satisfaction that Christ alone can provide, that no woman can ever offer you. For women of conviction, I say this. It's common for us to challenge women not to be a stumbling block to men because of male weakness. I challenge the women to guard your heart from seeking inappropriate attention by the way you dress, by the way you behave, by the places that you go. And that women need to guard their hearts and minds from a very pressing worldly message on beauty and perfectionistic standards that are completely unrealistic. 
I encourage you to take from 1 Peter 3 to put on godly character as your adornment and your beauty in the sight of God, in the sight of a godly husband. So for those who are married, I offer simply two challenges, to pursue and to protect. That you are called into marriage to pursue your spouse, to connect with him or her, to develop healthy verbal and physical intimacy. You're also called to protect, to cut off all inappropriate relationships. We live in a day and age where social media is a rampant wildfire of unhealthy connections and violations of biblical marriage. Once again, we will pursue these more as we go into chapter 7 of Paul's letters. I say this to our youth and to our young adults, for those of you who are not married. It is difficult in this culture to stay chaste. I want to acknowledge that and encourage you and commend you to simply acknowledging the fact that we are hardwired for intimacy and we need grace. We need community. We need protection. We need encouragement to battle loneliness and hardship and difficulty in a world filled with temptation. We have a natural desire to know and to be known. We have the strong urging to be valuable, to be wanted, to be pursued. And as you wrestle with that emotion, as you wrestle with those deep desires, find consolation in your Savior who loves you and pursues you. To find comfort in community that is godly and Christ-centered. To find your hope and joy and satisfaction in Him. For those that are dating, I remind young men, I remind men to lead and protect, to perhaps guard your girlfriend from you, to have strong and firm and clear boundaries about the nature of the relationship. I also challenge parents. You have a duty to pursue your children, to engage them, to know them, to remind them how valuable they are in your eyes, and ultimately in God's eyes. Children need affirmation. And children who are not getting affirmation, who are not being pursued by their parents, are very vulnerable to go astray and to be seeking unhealthy affections, premature and ungodly affections elsewhere. Our bodies were meant for the Lord. Our bodies are united with Christ And then lastly, in the the final three verses, Paul gives clear counsel regarding the nature of sexual temptation. His summary can be said in one word. Run! Flee! As running from a burning house to get out, to get out of a house in the midst of an earthquake, like the poor people of Nepal and other places that are vulnerable to earthquakes, to get out of the structure before it collapses down on top of your head. It's very possible that Paul is, has in mind the story of the patriarch Joseph who had to flee from the pursuits of Potiphar's wife as we find it in the story of Genesis. And you recall how the first time that this unfaithful woman propositioned him, Joseph simply tried to avoid her. In the second round, Joseph argued with her and said, how could I do such a thing and sin against 
God. That's conviction. And thirdly, when Joseph found himself trapped, he fled for his life and did not look back. Joseph suffered for his righteousness, and yet God proved faithful to him and to his people to deliver them from their bondage. God provides the way of escape for those who trust him, who embody conviction and are willing to follow the teachings of his word. And yet verse 18 raises some questions for us. First, you might ask, is sexual sin the only kind of sin against the body? And is it perhaps worse than other kinds of sins? Well, I side with those commentators who insist that that, that deny that Paul is saying that sins of alcoholism and drug abuse and gluttony and suicide are not sins against the body. Rather, the, the difference with the sexual nature of sins is that these other categories are not directly violating the one flesh union principle of Scripture. There's all kinds of sin that has devastating consequences. But in the way that Scripture is approaching these issues, it doesn't raise these other issues of sin at the same level that it does with adultery, which I remind you warranted death in the Old Testament and warrants divorce in the New Testament age. Marriage is the one consistent metaphor God uses to describe his relationship with us. And it was the label of adultery that God gave to his Old Testament people when he issued them a certificate of divorce and sent them into exile. It is sins of the sexual nature that are particularly damaging relationally and spiritually. In verse 19, Paul asked one final rhetorical question. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Temples in the ancient world were holy places. They were clean. To desecrate a temple warranted a capital offense. We know in the Old Testament that Yahweh dwelt amongst his people in a, in a, in a tent called a tabernacle. And the Gospels describe Jesus coming and dwelling amongst his people as he tabernacled with us. Prior to his death and return to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit in his place to take up residence with us, to tabernacle with us. And so sexual sin desecrates the dwelling place of the Lord. You are not your own. You were bought with the price of Jesus' own precious blood. Slaves were commonly bought and sold in the slave market. They were traded from one owner to another. Occasionally, a slave of, of means could accumulate enough wealth to buy his own freedom and oftentimes would secure the transaction at a temple and take the name of the God of that temple as his own. You and I were once slaves to sin. We have been bought. We are under new ownership. We are no longer slaves to the ways of the world. We are now slaves 
of the living God who calls us out of the muck of the world, out of the mire of sin and despair, to live as a people holy to the Lord, to express dignity, to proclaim the glory of his grace. Ours is the privilege to flee from the temptations of this world and to pursue the things of God through Jesus Christ. You are valuable. You are God's treasured possession. And he wants you to be on display for the testimony of his glory and his grace to a world in despair that needs the hope of the gospel. So as we bring this home tonight, I remind you of a few things in way of what I call gospel application. Our text reminds us that we are made in God's image, that we have dignity, that we are no longer slaves to our appetites, unable to control our desires. It's the gospel that restores our sexual sanity, that puts all things in perspective, that sets us straight, that we might honor God with chastity outside of marriage and faithfulness inside of marriage. The gospel also grants us forgiveness, cleansing. For those of us who have baggage, who have guilt from the past, who are looking for renewal and fresh cleansing through the blood of Christ, you are free. You are free from your guilt and your shame to stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But you also now have power power by the Spirit of God to flee temptation and the corruption of this world. For we truly live in an idolatrous age, and we need conviction. We need compassion on others who are drowning in the muck all around us. There's no doubt that many people, perhaps many millions of people, are celebrating the verdict of the Supreme Court and their ruling this past week. Sadly, many of those affirming it and celebrating it are professing believers, just as confused as these believers in Corinth were many two millennia ago. I believe that the ruling of this past week is a reflection of many things happening in our culture, one of which is largely the failure of the church in previous generations to stand for the truth to be a people of conviction, to hold to sound biblical teaching. In fact, many of the people who profess faith in Christ or profess to be a Christian, many of them believe nothing more than you have to be good for God to love you. And many of them have turned away from evangelical Christianity or what they think they understand about the gospel have turned away from a culture of failed marriages and failures to protect children from abuse, and have turned to sex and government for their salvation. Paul aims to show the Corinthians into Americans a better way. He does not shame them. He does not guilt trip them. He does not manipulate them to motivate them to behave. He pursues them. He loves them. He gently but firmly corrects them and teaches them the way of God. He restores to them their dignity, their worth, and their value in the sight of God. That just like the people of old, 
whom God pursued and redeemed and sought to protect them from the idolatry and immorality around them in Canaan. So God pursues the church to rescue us from an evil age, desiring to preserve us for the display of his holiness and testify to the glory of his grace. If you have a past and an ongoing struggle with temptation, I urge you to let God pursue you. Let him overwhelm you and enter in to deliver you, to renew you, and to cleanse you through the precious blood of Christ. To turn your affections away from the flesh to find your peace and your joy in Jesus Christ. And for the many of us who have loved ones going astray, may we find grace to forgive, to not be judgmental and yet boldly pursue, to love, to compel them to come home, to see in the gospel a beauty and a power that delivers them from bondage and misery. Your body is meant for the Lord. Your body is united to Christ. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let us pray. Our gracious God, our Father, we thank you for delivering us the blood of Christ from all the evil and the corruption of this age and from our sin nature. We thank you for the power of the gospel to transform us, to restore a right and dignified and biblical view of the body. Give us grace. Give us strength this week to walk in the light and to glorify you. In word, thought, and deed, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.